Beloveds, welcome back to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our Christian sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, and in liberation? What wisdom is there for us as white Christians in these troubled, violent times of pandemics, rising authoritarianism, and racial capitalism? And what beauty can we find in our resistance? I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap, pronouns she, her, hers. I'm a United Church of Christ minister, and I'm the faith organizing coordinator for Showing Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE. I live in the place currently called Buffalo, New York, here in the homelands of the Haudenosaunee peoples, And it seems like the birdies are really having a good time right outside the window, so you may hear that in the background today. This podcast is a project of Surge Faith and is particularly designed for white Christians. White Christians turning towards other white Christians to talk about race and white supremacy. We believe white Christians like us, like me, have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy And we also believe we have a responsibility to tell a new story about Christianity for white Christian folks, because our lives, all our lives, depend on it. And we do this work remembering we are building up a new world. This live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's song for the Freedom Movement is of a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado, in December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. The word is resistance. Well, friends, with this episode, we're starting a new series called Wrestling with Romans. For the next, like, four months, the lectionary gives us a series of readings from Romans, tracing the letter from chapter 4 to chapter 14. Now, let's be honest— Over the six years of this podcast, we haven't spent a ton of time with Paul. It makes sense, doesn't it? Paul is challenging. And Christianity has used Paul's letters to cause a lot of harm. It's actually not uncommon for progressive Christians then to just sort of give up on Paul. We love Jesus. We can retell stories about Jesus in ways that make more sense to us. And so we do. But how could there be anything of use in Paul? If you're queer or trans, if you're a woman, if your ancestors were enslaved, if you're poor, if you're not Christian, and especially if you're Jewish, it makes sense that we'd toss him out. And so as we begin this series, I really want to honor this. I want to honor how much harm has been done. I include myself in this, how Paul has been used to harm me as a queer woman, clergywoman. And still... Our podcast crew is taking on the challenge this summer and into fall to see if we can find a different meaning to Paul by wrestling with Romans, some of the primary texts that undergird those harmful theologies. It's quite the undertaking, as you can imagine, and we hope you'll come with us for the ride because we think that Paul is mostly misunderstood and misinterpreted. We've talked a lot in terms of the gospel readings about how those texts got twisted to serve the power of the Roman Empire. And actually, that's what's happened to Paul's letters, too. 
So we're going to practice reorienting ourselves and digging through centuries of layers of interpretation to try to get at a reading of Paul, Romans in particular, that could actually be helpful to us instead of harmful to us. Our crew is doing this work from a kind of multi-position place of the transformative justice practice and value that no one is disposable. And also, Paul has been misinterpreted to vastly harmful ends when actually he's pretty cool. And also, sometimes Paul says shit we can't sign on to. And, and also, the right uses misinterpretations of Paul as an organizing tool. That last one is important too, y'all, because if we give up Paul, we hand the right a tool they are more than willing to wield as a weapon. Can we tell a different story? Can we tell a better story? We surely need to, if at all possible. And we think we can. We think Paul does. So let's do this, shall we? Before I dig into today's text from Romans 4, here's a little more grounding of how we're approaching this series, like some basic ways we're orienting ourselves to Paul and Romans. First off, uh, we, we know that Paul is Jewish and does not convert to Christianity. He loves his tradition and he's teaching from it. And also, Paul is not a defender or apologist for the Roman Empire and, in fact, Paul's argument in Romans is about God's sovereignty over and against Rome and Caesar, not about Christian dominance and awesomeness over everything else, or Christian justification by faith versus Jewish justification by works. And to that end, Paul's letter is also about reminding Roman members of the community that they are the ones invited into the long, beautiful lineage of Jewish history and to stop lording their privilege over the Jewish folks and others without Roman privilege in their mixed community. And finally, we're holding that some key theological concepts that in Christianity that we think are Paul's inventions are actually Paul turning Roman propaganda by and about Caesar and Roman exceptionalism upside down and attributing those to God. And some key theological Christian concepts we think are Paul's inventions are actually Paul just sharing deep Jewish teaching. Our task for this series then is to hold for ourselves and for you this whole arc of Romans as Paul's argument about God's sovereignty in the face of Roman theological propaganda, and then look how that week's particular text is illuminating the whole arc. If you want to get a taste of what that whole art could be like, you can check out my 2017 episode, Romans and the Wages of Whiteness, which tells a whole different story about this infamous letter. The link to that is in the transcript. All right, then, on to Romans 4. We jump right into the middle of an argument Paul is making about Abraham. <laughs> yes, that is how the lectionaries, lectionary editors start us off, right in the middle of something Paul is trying to explain. So this is Romans 4, 13 to 25. 
mostly the NRSV, but with some edits based on notes from my class on Romans with Dr. Pamela Eisenbaum. For the promise that Abraham would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or to his descendants through law, but through the righteousness of faith. If it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. For this reason, the promise derives from Abraham's act of faith, in order that the promise will be guaranteed, according to grace, to all his descendants, not only to those who are descended from Torah, but also to those descended from the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom Abraham believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, hoping against hope, Abraham believed that he would become the father of many nations, according to what was said, so numerous shall your descendants be. He didn't weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was already as good as dead, for he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what God had promised. Therefore his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now the words, it was reckoned to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be reckoned to us, who believe in God, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was handed over for our trespasses, and was raised for our justification. Wow. Okay. Where do you even begin? Honestly, I hate it when the lectionary editors start texts in the middle of the story. If you've been around a while listening to the podcast, you know this, right? Paul is challenging enough. It's sure not helping us figure out what in the world he's talking about when we start halfway through. And we need to understand the whole argument here because Paul drops some of those big words and phrases that Christianity has turned into weighty theological concepts like law, faith, justification, righteousness. I mean... It sure sounds like Paul is talking about justification by faith versus justification by works, a.k.a. quote-unquote the law. But actually, Paul is saying something quite different. Although it can be tricky to track because, one, our translations are clunky anyway, and two, the translators assume the traditional interpretation of Romans as being against Jewish works righteousness in their translating, which also, quick reminder, that Jewish works righteousness was not a thing that ever actually existed. And three, Paul doesn't help because how he makes his argument, starting at least in chapter three, but in some ways earlier, 
kind of wanders around and includes him having a conversation with a whole other imaginary other person in chapter three. I remember Dr. Eisenbaum telling us how Paul actually dictated his letters, including Romans. Romans 16.22 is a greeting from the letter scribe Tertius. Amazing. So Dr. Eisenbaum said, imagine Paul pacing around the room, heated up about what's going on and trying to talk some sense into the people he's writing to. So of course his argument is going to kind of wander around. So here in the middle of chapter four, Paul is kind of winding up this part of his argument, which is not about faith being better than law or Torah, but about faith coming before and then also including law. That Abraham choosing to have faith in God's promise to be a blessing is what is considered righteousness, and that everyone, Jewish or not, who has that kind of faith, or as Eisenbaum translates, those who are descended from Torah, but also those descended from the faith of Abraham, they're all considered descendants of Abraham and inheritors of that promise. What Paul is saying is that first Abraham made the choice to have faith, which is really about having trust, choosing loyalty to the one God. After that, Abraham was circumcised, which is to say he followed the quote-unquote law, which is to say Torah, which is to say the embodied practice that shows one's trust or faith. And we have to circle back to the end of chapter 3, And remember to imagine Paul pacing around, where Paul invokes the Shema to be very clear that God, Hashem Echad, the one God, is the God of everyone, the whole world, which is to say the God of the whole world is not Caesar, and that if you have faith in, trust in, loyalty to the one God, regardless of your practice, which for Paul means whether you demonstrate that faith by circumcision for Jews and not circumcision for other peoples, you are part of the community part of that lineage. Faith doesn't overthrow the law. Paul literally says this, faith doesn't overthrow the law, followed up by, on the contrary, we uphold the law. Faith and practice are tied together, not in opposition to each other. It's in that context we come to Paul invoking Abraham as the common spiritual ancestor of both Jews and the nations, the people, sometimes translated in the NRSV as Gentiles. Abraham, the spiritual ancestor of both faith and practice, the spiritual ancestor because of both faith and practice. Being part of this lineage of those who have faith in, trust in, practice loyalty to the one God who even raised up Jesus is what justifies us, vindicates us. Okay, but like, why? For the sake of what? Why does any of this matter if Paul isn't making an argument about Christianity being better than Judaism? And now we get to the good stuff. On this past Sunday, our church marched in the Pride Parade here in Buffalo. 
And every so often, I'd see someone with a hat or a t-shirt that said, Make America Queer Again. You've probably seen this, or variations of it, like Make America Green Again, or Make America Kind Again, or whatever. The point is, we know exactly what this is referring to, right? It's referring to the Make America Great Again slogan of a president who claimed to be making the country great again, a good place again, with some rhetoric about it being good for everyone, or at least working people, but also with lots of threats of violence, some coded, some very much not, because what he really meant by great was wealth and power for himself and his cronies. It's still recent enough that we haven't forgotten yet. We can say, make America queer again, without needing a whole discourse on what the heck we're actually talking about. But imagine a future where we don't remember anymore that make America queer again is actually a counter-argument to make America great again, a thumb to the nose in the face of what's actually a violent slogan of a violent empire. We don't remember because we've been told make America queer again actually means something different. Something that twists the original meaning enough so that it becomes something that upholds violence and empire, rather than something that encapsulates an argument against it. And we're not taught the Red Hat slogan, or if we are, it's in very different classes from the ones where we're talking about the Pride slogan, so we never make the connection. It's like they have nothing to do with each other. And anyway, the Red Hat slogan was all about peace and order anyway, so what's the problem? So say, a hundred years from now, we see a photo of one of those t-shirts from the Pride March in 2023 and think, oh right, gays were so important to the American empire then. And the whole history of this moment right now with anti-trans and drag show bans and attacks on queer people happening even as we speak, all that history is erased and the pride slogan turned into one that legitimizes empire. It's not a perfect analogy, but I hope you're getting the point because this is exactly what has happened to Romans. Paul's letter is rife with references to Roman imperial theology and propaganda because Paul is making an argument against it. But it's invisible to us now because we've just been taught that justification, for example, is a thing Paul made up that supports Christianity's awesomeness against Judaism, rather than justification being the literal propaganda Caesars used to justify their reign and the violence they used to uphold their power and wealth. Roman Caesars and their poet praisers declared they were justified to be the divine leader of the empire because of their works, which proved their piety, their worthiness to wield power and privilege, their worthiness to be the son of God. These works included their colonizing violence, of course, as well as benefactions like the Roman games to entertain and gifts of grain and food to the poor and ritualized generosity during festivals and imperial cult sacrifices that were all really ways that Caesar and his underlings could show off their power and privilege and maintain, as Neil Elliott says, lasting asymmetrical relationships between social unequals. The Caesars declared that they were justified to rule by these works, 
that their divinely ordained destiny was to inherit the world, note the quote then in Romans 4.13, to inherit the world, and that by having faith in, having trust in, giving loyalty to Caesar, the father of the nations, was one of his titles, the peoples could be part of the Roman destiny to rule the world. They could be part of and participate in that imperial lineage. That propaganda about Caesar would have been everywhere in some form or fashion. Coins, sculptures, buildings, temples, poetry, everywhere, all throughout the empire. Paul would not have needed to say, oh, hey, Caesar is claiming this thing to make his point because what Caesar was claiming was right outside their door. People would have recognized the propaganda Paul was referencing without him needing to spell it out, just like I knew what make America queer again really meant without needing someone to show me a red hat. Just like I can say red hat in this context, and you know exactly what I mean. And that propaganda was not only about maintaining the power of Caesar by demonstrating his justification to power via works and piety, but also that propaganda served to cover up the vast and violent exploitation that Roman power relied upon by calling it the Pax Romana, for example, peace and order. And also, that propaganda is making an argument about why the impious, the poor, the conquered, anyone who claims Caesar is not God, are not fit to rule. This point about the pious and the impious is really important because the Jewish people were seen by the Roman Empire as decidedly impious. And impious was the word that Romans that the Romans used and gets picked up by Paul in a few places in his letter. The Jewish people were considered impious by Rome. Their material conditions, poverty, being conquered and enslaved, anti-Jewish pogroms such as in Alexandria in 38 to 41 CE and Nero expelling the Jews from Rome in 49 CE at around the time that this letter uh, from Paul to the Romans would have been written. These were all proof of their impiety, their lesser than status, even when those conditions were the very result of Roman violence. Refusing to give loyalty to Caesar and the imperial cult and their gods was another sign of Jewish impiety, which is to say maintaining their faith in, their trust in, their loyalty to the one God, Hashem Echad, like Abraham did, may have made the Jewish and other peoples impious, but it justifies, vindicates them in God's embrace. It makes them descendants of Abraham, the most impious of them all, because he never gave up his trust in the one God. Neil Elliott writes, Paul invokes Abraham precisely as the ancestors of those who appear impious because they have left Rome's gods behind. But they are in fact faithful, as Abraham was because they have turned to the living and true God, the God capable of bringing life from the dead. Refusing the imperial identification of piety with power and privilege, they should accept their own status as impious in the eyes of Rome. This kind of faith, 
faith like Abraham had faith, is is reckoned to Abraham and to us as well. The NRSV translates the Greek here as righteousness. But the Greek is the same word that gets translated as justification there at the end of chapter 4. Jesus was raised for our justification. Jesus was raised for our righteousness. And to just stir one more thing into this, this Greek root that gives us these words justification and righteousness is the Greek used to translate the Hebrew word tzedakah. In Hebrew, tzedakah describes a kind of justice that means that wealth is distributed so fairly that everyone has what they need. No one goes hungry or without clothing, where everyone is nourished and thrives, prisoners are freed, communities are safe from harm. Tzedakah is good news for the oppressed. Tzedakah is everything the Roman Empire is not. Tzedakah is the world as God longs for it to be. So Paul is not only turning Roman propaganda upside down, he's using God's own longing for a beautiful and fair and safe and thriving world for everyone to do it. Abraham's faith in, trust in, loyalty to the one God was reckoned to him as tzedakah, was considered tzedakah, which is to say getting to the world God longs for means trusting in God's ways and power. Trusting in the one God who is able to create life out of death rather than the empire's ways of violence and destruction. Because that faith leads to practice. Abraham trusted God's promise and then took the first step towards that promise. The whole part of this, the whole point of this part of Romans is to remind the Roman faithful and perhaps us that when we choose faith in the one God, Hashem Echad, rather than the bullshit works that uphold imperial power, when we choose the one God, we become descendants of Abraham, to whom was given the promise of being a blessing to all his descendants. And that blessing is tzedakah. Choosing faith in the one God makes us descendants of Abraham. We join an ancient lineage seen by the empire as impious, but seen and celebrated by God as pious and as what makes tzedakah possible. And in joining that lineage, we become participants in the promise of blessing, participants in the promise of tzedakah, participants in the world as God longs for it to be. Wow, so that was a lot. (laughs) So I think for our call to action today, first I just want you to feel. Feel how all that landed in your body, in your spirit. How does it feel for you? Maybe journal a little bit about how hearing this different way of understanding Paul's argument made your body feel and what those feelings are telling you. For me, I've been 
breathless and excited this whole time with the feeling of like little fireworks going off in my brain. Sort of like maybe Paul pacing around his room. I think that excitement is in part getting to share this with you and also excitement for the possibilities this reading of Paul offers us. A second action is to practice noticing where we're buying into imperial propaganda in our own time from the exceptional U.S. empire. There's no judgment here. It's around us all the time. We can't avoid it like the people in the Roman Empire can avoid it. What are we being told to have faith in? What bullshit works are we being asked to have trust in so we can be seen as part of an imperial destiny? This is all Paul is really asking his people to do, to notice this and reorient ourselves to our lineage in the promise of the one God, to be a blessing, to be tzedakah in a world that desperately needs it. Noticing is a practice, a constant spiritual practice to keep ourselves grounded in God's longing for a beautiful and fair and safe and thriving world for everyone. Beloveds, thanks as always for joining us from wherever you are on this good earth. We'd love to hear from you, especially from folks of color and non-Christian folks, by filling out the listener survey on our podcast page at surge.org. And give us a like or rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to our podcast. You can find out more about Surge at surge.org, and our podcast lives on SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. Transcripts are available as well as on our as well on our website, which include references, resources, and action links. And we'll be back next week with the resistance word from Liz Carney as we continue on in our Wrestling with Romans series. And of course, a huge thanks to our sound editor this week, Claire Hitchens. Blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Love and liberation, beloveds. Love and liberation. Until next time, I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap. Yeah.